Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Doug Stewart, CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute. We talk about Christianity, libertarianism, and a story of discovering both. Doug also talks about the compatibility of both the principles behind why this is a growing group. Before learning about the Libertarian Christian Institute, I really didn't know if there were people like me who had libertarian and Christian sensibilities. The, Doug basically showed me that this is not the case, that there are many people like me, and he invited me to uh, his podcast a few months ago. I found his book, Faith Seeking Freedom, a well-reasoned defense of libertarianism for Christians in particular. If you're a libertarian, I hope this episode gives you some insight into Christian thought. And if you're Christian, vice versa. Enjoy. Doug, how's everything going, man? Going pretty well. The weather in my area is not as hot as it was, so I'm enjoying the better climate. Oh, very nice. How are all the restrictions and, you know, masking and all that where you are? You know, I was actually pondering that today. So I'm in central Pennsylvania. And mm. right now, because Pennsylvanians voted to not allow the governor to extend his own emergency declarations, what's happened is the governor is now begging the Republican Congress to come and implement mask mandates, and they're not doing <laughs> it. So that's a little that's a little new. Last mm. year, that was not the case. They wanted, you know, he wanted the, the legislature wanted him to work with them. And now mm. he's having to do that. So what I've noticed, though, is I'll go to like a place like Costco or just my local grocery store or whatever. And I will notice that a lot of these companies have mandated that their employees have wear masks. In other mm. words, I haven't noticed any employees not wearing a mask in many of these places. And I'm like, oh, OK, fine. That's no problem with me. You know, they're just mm. taking precautions. No problem. And I'm not wearing a mask. And I'm also thinking, oh, my goodness, two things that come to mind. One is not everybody that's wearing a mask is unvaccinated. Mm. I'm pretty sure people who are vaccinated are also wearing masks. And I understand that those two aren't necessarily related. It's not like mm -hmm. a get out of your mask free shot. But the other thing that I've also noticed is that no one seems to be looking at me askance for not wearing a mask or giving me the stink eye or like it <laughs> seems like at least in my area and I don't live in like really rural area. I live in an area where it's sort of city, sort of country. I'm kind of like, oh, this is this is kind of how it should be where like people are just kind of letting other people make their own decisions and, mm. and understanding and respecting their own risk. I don't know if that's what's going through people's minds. I'm sure a lot of the employees are judging me for not wearing a mask or wondering <laughs> like, even if you're vaccinated, why aren't you wearing a mask? So. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's been an interesting it's been an interesting month that I've noticed more masking happening in my area. Mm. So there has been more masking, but it's more voluntary. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it is. And I don't know if there are companies that have mandated like their employees wear masks other than these retail outlets and stuff. The ones that I'm familiar with that are not retail related, no one's really. It's more like, hey, if you feel like this is for you, you do it. Mm. Yeah, it, it's such a strange thing with these masks, like some are requiring it. And I almost don't want to ever ride like an Uber or Lyft anymore, just because, mm. you know, they're requiring the masks and stuff. It's yeah. Such a crazy oh, thing. I know. You know, the other thing I just thought of is that our, our one of my daughter's school, she goes to a private school and they have been pretty, pretty vigilant 
against mm. coronavirus, at least in their minds, and mm. they've taken proactive measures and sort of followed CDC guidance. And so they, up until the week before school started, they were going to let parents and children choose whether or not they masked up. And then right before mm. they were like, yeah, no, for now, we're just going to we're going to go with mask mandates. So which was <laughs> which is what they were doing last year. So the kids were kind of like, well, all right, fine. You know, like, mm. I tell you what, I know parents hate putting masks on their kids. The kids many kids don't care they're fine like kids are resilient and it's it can be traumatic for some kids i mean i understand it's not everybody but you know some kids just roll with it and mm. you know for the most part they'll get through it they'll have a memory and they'll they'll remember these they will remember this year two years of school hopefully only two years for a long time Mm-hmm. Well, so I brought you on the show because you are, you know, part of the Christian Libertarian Institute. So before we get to that, can you tell us like how you got to where you are and, you know, how you're, you know, how you became a part of this organization? So how did I get to where I was? So right now I act as the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, and my partner in crime is Dr. Norman Horn, who was the founder of LibertarianChristians.com back in 2008. And in 2015, it became the Libertarian Christian Institute as a 501c3 nonprofit so that we could further our mission. So how did I get here? So around the same time that Norman did, somewhere between about 2005 to 2008, we both separately. We didn't even know each other. So he was in Texas. I was in Pennsylvania. Actually, I was in Delaware at the time, but didn't even know each other at all. And separately started questioning, challenging the inconsistencies in conservative politics Mm. and especially how it comports with our Christian faith. And so, for instance, for me, part of that was listening to Ron Paul on the Glenn Beck program because I was a big Glenn Beck fan, partly because he just his style of humor and shenanigans in his earlier years prior to being on television were just really funny to me. And I just really, you know, really attractive. And then he got more political and I was, you know, I was into politics. So that was cool with me. But over time, he started saying things like I'm a libertarian at heart. And I was like, oh, what's a libertarian? And I looked into it and I you know, he had Ron Paul on. And for a while, I thought Ron Paul was crazy about war stuff. And then I started realizing, nope, he's not. (laughs) He was right all along. Well, I I shouldn't say I said that back then, but I say that now. So Glenn Beck kind of led me to the libertarians who were more consistent. And, you know, eventually I just stopped listening to Glenn Beck, not because I don't like the guy. I just faded, faded away from my interest. And so I started reading and listening to a lot of courses and academic stuff from Fee, from the Mises Institute, I picked up podcasts. I remember listening to Freedom Watch. I don't know if you remember that. That was uh, mm-hmm. Judge Napolitano and mm-hmm. Shepard Smith, actually, together did this podcast. So I was learning economics. And let me back up for a second. During that time, I was also becoming more... I don't know how to describe it. I was leaning further left in my theological views as Mm. I was starting to think through where I was theologically and in my Christian faith through seminary. But what I kept coming up with was I just can't make other people go with what I think is the right way to structure society or go with what I think is the moral thing to do. And Mm. I'm like, I just had that like check in my spirit. And What happened for me was, I think, the Holy Spirit was like, hey, you need to be more informed about Mm. 
the way the world works. Well, what's the science that studies the way the world works? Well, there's a handful of them, but economics is one of them. It's like, well, mm. if you want to understand social justice and how we redistribute money, you might need to learn some economics. Mm. So that's where I went. And of course, you know, the aforementioned Ron Paul started realizing stuff about money there. Oh, okay. Maybe I should read some, you know, economists that talk about, you know, well, economists that write about the economy. So I believe the first book I read, at least that I can remember, is from Bob Murphy, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. And so from there, I just started reading books recommended and sort of went through that that train of thought. So I, in some ways, I would say I became a libertarian because I was interested in social justice, but I wasn't interested in the path that the progressive left and the Christian left wanted to take in order to achieve social justice. Hmm. Well, so what conclusion did you actually come to? Like you started learning about this stuff. What's the correct way in Mm -hmm. which you go about it, given those two ideologies? That's a really good question. I would say that the, the most passionate way for me to say it is if your gospel requires the threat of force of the state, it's not powerful. And I, you know, in, in Romans, Paul talks about the gospel being powerful and people make that connection about the power and the word dynamite and all that. And, you know, we can parse all of that out. But the idea there is that the gospel has power. The message that Jesus has set us free has power to it. And if you need the state to get you there or to be part of that message or to be part of the good news to the poor that Jesus mm-hmm. talks about when he quotes from Isaiah, like... I think that's in Luke three or Luke four. If you need the state to make it happen, you haven't really been, you're not really preaching the gospel. I mean, I can even sort of go with like, well, okay, maybe temporarily we need to have some action here because these people are destitute and we have to intervene and and make sure that they're not going to die or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like I can sort of give into that like urgency, but most people on the left, as you probably well know, that's not their thing. They want the MO to be the state takes care of you. Mm. They don't want the state to be the backstop of like the destitute, right? Or the the Mm. safety net for the destitute, although they want that. That's not the only thing they're asking about. They're not asking for, they're asking for a whole lot more, right? So my conclusion there was, I believe that if the gospel is a free invitation to follow Christ, to be set free from the bondage and disease of sin, then when we as Christians engage in the world and we're calling individuals to repentance, we're calling individuals to follow Christ, I don't have a problem saying that there's a social application to that. I don't even really have a problem if you have a long conversation about the idea of a social gospel, that the gospel is not just about the afterlife. It is for the eternal life we have now in Christ. But if it's not voluntary, if it's not an invitation, if it's a like, if it's a mandate and not an invitation, then it's not the gospel. And Mm -hmm. so I'm just like, that's why I believe libertarianism for two reasons. One kind of what I'm just saying is that it's the most consistent expression of Christian political thought because it still leaves the it still leaves the gospel as a voluntary mode or a voluntary message. Right. It's a voluntary call to action. And the second, and this is one that I also picked up from sort of a leftist theologian named Walter Brueggemann called the prophetic imagination. And you can also read about it from Brian Zahn and a few others, but that the church and Christians should always have a voice against empire, 
And that mm. thread runs throughout scripture, starts a lot in the prophets, but you can read it from the beginning to the end. And Jesus picks that up and Jesus is all about all against empire. And I don't know of any other political thread in American history that speaks against empire as strongly as libertarianism does. Now, it's not all encompassing, it's not perfect, but it is it does carry and it has that huge vibe of hold on, you're the state, this isn't your rightful role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know there's libertarian anarchists and there's libertarian minarchists who believe in a minimal state versus no state at all and either one of those has to can still say to whatever reigning empire there is, no, that's not your role. You are overstepping your boundaries. Leave these people alone. You mm. just because you think you're helping them, just because you think you're giving them a hand up or a hand out or whatever, you're actually treading on them. So those are kind of the two reasons. It's like there's the voluntary nature of the gospel and the call to repentance and to follow Christ. And then there's the prophetic voice element to it where it's like, hey, the church, we are to call out the state. We do not need the state. In fact, it's actually mm. at odds with the gospel. In fact, you know, one, I can't believe I'm bringing this up near the end of my little, you know, statement here. But like another thing that I learned during that time as in sort of understanding politics vis-a-vis the gospel is that Jesus and the early church, when they talked about Christ, when they say Jesus is Lord, that was an inherently political statement. And it mm. meant Caesar is not. So the state is not the government. And or sorry, the state is not the is not the kingdom of God. The state is at odds with the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is meant to over, I want to say, supplant the state and make it irrelevant and unnecessary. So there's that sort of cosmic battle going on there, if you will. So there you go. I got three things for you instead of just two. <laughs> well, so what you said was really intriguing because at least currently and with a lot of churches right now. And especially during the pandemic and everything, you know, what most of them were preaching was, hey, you need to be subject to the state and we need to obey the state and so on. And yet, you know, you're saying something very different. So can Mm. you expound on your perspective or maybe some of the listeners that do hear this argument often that, hey, Romans, Romans I think 13. Yeah, Romans 13, 1 Peter 5, something like that. Like, there's a lot of be subject to the authorities and so on. Yeah. How do you determine when they're overstepping and when should you be subject and, you know, yeah, be more libertarian, I guess? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And I think in some ways it's going to depend to some extent on the individual's conscience. But, you know, and I hate to bring this into what, we're 12 minutes into this conversation, maybe, (laughs) and I'm already going to bring up 1930s Germany. (laughs) 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 Right? So I don't even have to mention the word that always gets mentioned within a certain amount of the -hmm. name that should not be named in these conversations. But if you are defying the Third Reich, are you committing a sin? Mm. I mean, Obviously, I'm using that extreme to set an example here. And you and I could sit and say, you know what? The government is really just trying to protect you and make sure that you don't spread a virus to someone else. And so the government telling you to put on a mask is not a big deal. You should just do it, right? And to that kind of person, I say, well, why is this such an easy thing for you to say, to say submit, right? Mm-hmm. And you have that end of the conversation. So I would say in terms of how do you know when you're supposed to submit? Well, first of all, the very obvious thing is if if the state is asking you to do something that is contrary to the will of God, murder somebody, 
which is why I'm against war and conscription. If the state is asking you to do something that harms another individual or violates their rights, then I would say that the state is asking you to do something that is contrary to the will and desire of God. I do know that there is a check in everybody that need or everybody needs to check themselves, I should say, that they're not just using their own discernment to mm. speak for God in there. It's like, well, God wouldn't want me to put on a mask. Otherwise, I would have been born with one or something silly mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that, that's an extreme example. Those kinds of things are probably a little bit far fetched. So we can't just use like, oh, well. Uh, the state doesn't get to tell me what to do because I don't think God would want me to, God didn't tell me not to do that or to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we can use that as an excuse for just saying, oh, well, I'm not subject to the state. But outside of those realms, I mean, the obvious thing is keep yourself away from sin. And if the state is telling you to sin, then you don't do that. One specific example I could give is when right now you've had, or not right now, but last year in 2020, you had a lot of state governments and even local governments telling churches not to meet, not to gather. Mm. And our governor in Pennsylvania came very close. I mean, it was really strong language. We don't think you should meet, but they didn't cross that line in trying to forbid it. And so I don't know of any particular cases in Pennsylvania that came out as if like churches were not allowed, but I know there were some in California, a couple in Canada, and I'm sure a handful around the country in other ways where they said, nope, no large gatherings whatsoever. Whereas in Pennsylvania, at least ironically of all the states, because there's been a lot, there was a lot of pushback on our governor for a lot of things he did. He didn't cross that boundary. And a lot of Christians were going to say, well, the Bible tells us to not give up meeting together. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I'm like, come on, guys, can we not be a little more creative than that? Mm. First of all, we didn't have large gatherings in the early church. You know, when those books Mm. were written, they were house churches, and some of them could have been pretty large. It could have been dozens and dozens of people beyond the, you know, what would be safe in close quarters for, for a virus. But we can get creative, and it's temporary. I don't believe that the state is going to continue, not in America at least, going to continue to tell churches not to meet. In fact, we're already beyond, well beyond that, right? I mean, most churches mm-hmm. are back to fairly normal, at least uh, in my state they are, uh, and have been for several months. And it's like you can say, well, I just don't want to listen to the government, and I'm going to go to church anyway. Or you can be prudent, and you can be wise and make the kind of decision that enhances your testimony and also keeps people safe if that's something that that it's doing. Yeah, so I think I've just kind of rambled a little bit there. I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to rein me back in, but <laughs> in terms of like how do you understand, you know, where that is? A lot of it is just being wise and prudent. I know that's a very vague answer, but I'll mm-hmm. I'll end with that and we can keep talking. Yeah, I mean, for me at least, it seems like there is this tendency that you talked about earlier for sort of like social action or like government action to replace personal virtue. Mm-hmm. That if we're mandated to do something, that it's somehow equivalent to doing something ourselves willingly. So for example, you know, not to pick on Catholics or anything like that, sure. but you know, they have Catholic social teaching, which is basically fight for, you know, poor people to get a bigger piece of the pie and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that to me just doesn't seem like very Christian, right? Like you're forcing other people to contribute to like almsgiving. I think charity is very much part of, you know, being a Christian and that's virtue if you're doing it willingly. But if it's taxed away from you, that's something else completely. And like, to be frank, like this whole mask mandate and, you know, stay at home and lockdowns, all that seems very similar. It's, 
it's virtue if you're making the personal decision to not do something mm-hmm. that you think will endanger other people. It is very much not a virtue when you're mandated to do the same thing and you're just you're just sort of submitting to the will of somebody else. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And of course, I would totally agree with that. The thing that I would add is I don't think there's a problem with finding ways to pursue what we might call social justice that does not require the, the mechanism of taxation or mandates. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you look at the hockey stick graph, not of climate change or the global temperatures that we're supposed to believe, but of the last two to 300 years or just in history, but the last two to 300 years is that upward trend of wealth and prosperity in our world. What created that? Well, a lot of things created that and converged, but a lot of it is on the idea of free markets and individuals being willing to, as Deirdre McCluskey says, has a, have a go at it and basically unleash the will and desire of people to be free to better themselves by offering something to other people. So if you are interested in social justice, if you're interested in the well-being of the poor, you can say to the person, hey, I think you should give alms or I think you should donate your time or whatever it is. And you can also say, well, I think you should pay more in taxes, although I don't think that's a legit option, just like you, you were just talking about. The other option would be to convince that person that markets are going to help that poor person or for that matter, their children and their children's children and their children's children's children over time so that at some point down the road, our great grandchildren aren't having this conversation over who gives alms. Right. Mm -hmm. Because while there will always be someone, I mean, there's always going to be the bottom one percent. Right. (laughs) Statistically. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that in some way in the future will be still luxurious in some fashion compared to what we have today. But I want to see a world where we have freely chosen the best of all alternatives to achieve prosperity together without coercion. Mm. Yeah, there's sort of like an undercurrent of coercion, which is really the problem, right? Like, because, mm-hmm. and that's, I think, what the real tension here between libertarianism and Christianity can come into play, because there are some people that kind of want to coerce other people. Yeah. And, you know, at least in my reading of the gospel, that's not it at all. That's antithetical to Christianity. Yeah. Yet there's, there always seems to be a tendency towards that coercion in all sorts of things, you know, whether it be locking people down or, you know, like what's going on in Australia or, you know, on the other side, like conscripting people to war and things like, yeah, like it seems such a contradiction to me. And I'm still at a loss as to why people are so insistent on, you know, usually the justification they give is, well, it's okay to be coerced as long as it's by somebody you're nominally under the authority of. Yeah. It just seems kind of odd to me. Yeah, no, I agree. And there's two things the last year that I have lamented quite a bit. It's not a particular policy. It's not a particular politician or group of people per se, but it's this two things. One is the death of a free speech culture. Now, we could talk about censorship in like private social media stuff. That's kind of a different topic and what I have in mind here. But the idea that people want to censor others or that they don't respect each other enough to say, well, 
okay, that's bad information, but here's more good information. So that that's one, the death of free speech culture. I see it happening, and I think it's going to be one of the most difficult things to overturn in the next decade or two if we don't lose that, if we lose that battle. The other thing is I just seem to notice that everyone, especially on the left, but it also happens on the right. It just didn't happen on the right in during coronavirus because Trump was president. Most of the really hard right were really into Trump and not listening to not listening to the powers that be, so to speak. So it was mostly on the left at this point. But this idea that what they think is good for you and what they think is the proper interpretation of scientific data is what you need to do. You just need to fall in line. And so it's like they were waiting for their opportunity to say, look at the science, whatever that means. Look at the science. You have to do what we think you should do. Otherwise, you are a selfish jerk and you're putting others at risk. And you're the reason why this curve is just never bending yet or whatever it might be. And so people were just itching for let's just find a way to make people do what we think they should do. And because at least earlier on during the coronavirus pandemic, when we were still figuring out what exactly would work, it's like, just stay home, do your part, stay home. You know, it was like, just be obedient. And it's so funny to me. I have friends that I used to work with when I was employed somewhere and I'm self-employed now, but when I was employed, I had coworkers who they didn't quite understand the libertarian mindset of people just have free choice and individuality. And what's interesting is they wanted to share their individuality in a whole variety of ways in their work. And it's like, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. But as soon as it comes to some sort of like social thing, social experience, there's like only one way. This is how you do it. Right. And this is what you just put a mask on or you just get vaccinated or you just stay home or whatever it is, whatever the state tells you to do or whatever the CDC is guiding you to do. Okay, and then they hide behind the whole like, well, it's just guidance. But yeah, but like everyone else is just kind of following what they're doing. It's just following the guidance and it turns right into mandate. So, yeah, those two things, the, the death of free speech culture and just the underlying ache for people to find a reason to say to their opponents you need to do what you're told. And I think the right would do that at an opportunity that makes sense to them. You know, 9-11 comes to mind a little bit. It's like, you know, we need to rally together to, you know, fight the terrorists. And if not, you're just enabling and you're just, you're soft on terrorism and you're soft on whatever. So it works both ways. And I'm just over here thinking, why do we have to make people do other, like why? I'm more concerned about the fact that people were itching to tell other people what to do. Mm. as opposed more so than it is the like, well, I believe you're right in this case and you're wrong in this case and you're right on this case and so forth. So anyway, that's where I am. I was like, why do people have to be this way? <laughs> so yeah, there, that's where I am. There's a certain desire to lord over other people or something like that, I, which is what you're describing. Like there's almost like a human instinct to dominate others. And that seems to yeah. have like sort of expressed itself Especially in our politics, as you said, like with maybe the Republicans uh, earlier in like, you know, the 2000s or something. Yeah. Whereas with more of the left right now, that seems to be the direction that politics is going. And libertarianism seems to be standing sort of as this very different way to look at things. And mm -hmm. so it makes sense to me. Why isn't it more popular? <laughs> 
Oh, I don't know. I've asked myself that question every week. Um, <laughs> why isn't it more? Like, why is it not appealing? Mm. I mean, on the on the one hand, you have this uh, individual appeal to live as you please, just don't harm other people. And in the word harm, I'm using that really generically. The word harm, libertarianism has, is a more specific principle or uh, theory of rights and aggression. Okay, we talk about the non-aggression principle. So when I use the word harm for any purist libertarians out there, I'm not I do mean aggression. I might just use the word harm interchangeably. So mm-hmm. we have this in it's like there's this appeal to don't do others harm and you can kind of do what you want. Right. And if you want to gain something, you got to give something. You want to mm-hmm. get something from somebody. You want to become prosperous. You have to, well, not give back to society, but you have to give to society in the first place. Right. So we have this personal like appeal to individuals that says, hey, you can do what you want. Just don't harm anybody. So I don't know why that's not an appealing factor, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to convince somebody that they should give you money, if you want to become prosperous, then you then have to give something to them. So you have to give to society before you actually gain in profit. I don't know, first of all, what's unchristian about that. Second of all, what's unappealing about that fact. I think it's just our impulse to want to control what other people do. We want the world shaped the way that we wish it were shaped. And so we look for opportunities to... I don't know, nudge or push the world in such a way that says, oh, well, if I can just get more people vaccinated, I'll feel safe. Or if I can get more people to, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance, I'll feel like I'm among people with whom I can trust or respect or whatever. And I'm like, I don't I don't judge people either way. Like, I don't care if if libertarian Christians get vaccinated or not. I don't care if they decide they're going to wear a mask or not. Like, I'm just like, look, it's your personal choice. And so I look at that as one appeal. The other appeal on the the broader scale, so that's the personal appeal. The broader Mm -hmm. appeal in my mind is that what on earth have we been missing for past 200 years in terms of like teaching people history that we've, we've gotten this prosperous through relatively free markets and we want to just ditch all of that. Mm -hmm. Like I don't get it. And you don't even have to be a libertarian per se to really understand that. You just have to have a, I don't know, one class in economics, even in a high school level economics, to know that when you coerce people, you don't get prosperity. Mm. Like, at least not in the long run. You might get it just a little bit, blips here and there. Or for, for a few people. Yeah. Or for a few, right, or for <laughs> a few people. It's like, what the heck? And I think the, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Sowell's The Conflict of Visions. There's two types of people that are two type, two visions that people have in society. And I can't remember the names of the terms, but one of them has to do with whether or not the human agency, human agency is malleable and can adapt and can change whether human nature is basically fundamentally changeable. It's like the, the whole, like, are we good or are we bad? But, and can we change it? Right. Mm-hmm. And the people who are in the, Oh, I know what they're called. The constrained and unconstrained visions. And so the people who believe in the constrained vision, those of you who are Thomas soul list, you know, I read this book many years ago, and so I'm trying to recall it here while I'm talking. (laughs) The constrained vision says, no, human beings can only be adaptive to an extent in their nature. And so we need to create institutions around those limitations. Whereas the people who have the unconstrained vision basically say, well, no, if we have the right institutions and we have the right laws, which are part, part of the institutions, then we can change how people actually are. And so we can change people to be, say, more empathetic. We can change people to be more charitable. Like, I guess in their minds, the people who live in the unconstrained vision of like, we can just, you know, form society however we want. They're imagining a world 
two, 300 years from now or whatever world in the future of people who don't care that they're paying taxes because, oh, but it's just a way for me to give to people or it's a way for me to contribute to society in a way that it's all equitable. Right. And so in their mind, it's like, well, look, if you hate paying taxes, it's not theft if you're okay paying them. (laughs) So the trick is not to get rid of taxes, but to get rid of the fact that you don't want to pay them. (laughs) It's like the line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where there's, there's this civilization in some, you know, random corner of the galaxy that says, you know, they're always happy. And they said they found that the best way to not be unhappy is to not have a word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So in a sense, what you're saying is that you know, there are people that think that human nature is, I don't know, more malleable or yeah. something to that yeah. effect. And I've heard this idea before, and I want to hear what you think of this this conception that, you know, this boils down to sort of a difference in epistemology, mm-hmm. that the theory of knowledge, basically, that yeah. Those that are empiricists tend to believe that human nature is more malleable, that you can, you know, change things around to, uh, you know, satisfy certain numbers that you want or whatever. Whereas, you know, the rationalists, the ones that believe in a priori knowledge, essentially knowledge that is outside of just observation, that there is sort of like a metaphysical reality, which I think every Christian believes in, mm-hmm. but maybe not non-Christians don't. They believe that there is a human nature and that, like, for example, in Austrian economics, people prefer things earlier than later. You know, they want more than less, Mm -hmm. you know, just very basic axioms, which ultimately a lot of these programs that are trying to human nature essentially run up against and then they fail, unsurprisingly. Would that be a way in which you argue to libertarians, I suppose, about Christianity, because it is a framework by which, mm-hmm. you know, a priori knowledge is acknowledged. And it sort of shows the futility of this empiricist, way more Keynesian from a practical standpoint, control of the economy, which results in so much suffering. Well, the, the trick here, as you're talking about the malleability and, and all mm-hmm. of that, the trick here that I thought about when I was listening to the Thomas Sowell book that I was talking about a few minutes ago. It was about probably five or six years ago that I listened to an audiobook. The one thing for Christians is that we believe that human nature is a certain way and that we are, you know, to use traditional terms, we are fallen, we are plagued by sin, and it is it affects pretty much everything we do. That doesn't mean it affects it to the umpteenth degree, but it affects all that's happening in what humans are doing. Mm. But we also believe that human nature in some ways can be redeemed and changed. Mm. And so Mm. it's like, well, on the one hand, as a Christian, I do believe that people can change. And I do believe that with the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, by them receiving the gospel and believing the gospel and following Christ, that like what's happening is they are being changed. And Mm. I would, you know, anybody who's a post-millennialist, is probably thinking, yeah, that sounds familiar. Like, we want to look forward to a society where people have been changed. When it comes to, I think your question was about, like, how do I talk to libertarians about the gospel? That Libertarians that might not be Christians, is that, is that what you were kind of asking there? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Most of the time, when we're talking to non-Christian libertarians, it is usually about libertarian ideas. But at some points, it gets to, well, how is it that you 
kind of blend these two because my experience of Christianity is that Christians want to tell people what to do. They want to tell people that they need to get vaccinated or they want to tell people that they need to pray in schools, pray in public schools or whatever it might be, right? Or, you know, on either side of the argument. And earlier, you know, I just explained why I feel like those two things are not right and what the Christian libertarian view is. And what happens is you see them realize that the God who you are following in their minds, the God you just told them about, or let me be, let me turn that around a little bit. The, the Jesus that I just told them that I follow is not the Jesus who says, okay, now that you're following me, you need to make sure everyone else just does what I think you should tell them to do. Mm. Like there's this sort of hierarchical vision that they, or imagination that they think they imagine that there's this hierarchical thing where like you get all these Christians in charge of politics and they're going to tell the world how to live like Christians. And mm-hmm. they're going to be like that. They're going to harsh the buzz of the people who just want to live the way they want to live. Right. And so when you tell them that the gospel is an invitation to follow Christ and that it offers you salvation from sin, salvation from what sin damages through their lives and that eternal life can begin now. It's not just like, oh, you go to heaven when you die. It starts to sort of change the way they look at what does the gospel actually look like. And it looks a lot more similarly to what most libertarian voluntarists tend to sort of advocate. Like, hey, we're all for those things. Like, you know, making sure that poor people have their needs met and making sure that people are safe and blah, 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 blah. You know, the voluntarists will say, well, we're all for those things, but we don't want to coerce people to do it. And I think what most people's experience of Christianity has been a very sort of forceful, evangelical, and I don't mean that in a, you know, large E there, sort of evangelistic, I should say, street preaching style, Bible thumping. That's what, that's what a lot of people my age I think sort of remember, and they're mm. rightly in some ways turned off by it. But when you, yeah, when you talk about the gospel as a free offer, I mean, maybe they're okay with it because it's like, oh, okay, good. I don't have to follow you. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who sort of react mm. that way, but I think they've gotten a different glimpse of who Jesus is when you mm. tell them that this is not the Jesus that's telling me to tell you how to live your life. If you want Jesus to tell you how to live your life, which is going to be a better life than what you have now, then that's a whole different story. But I'm Jesus isn't telling me to how to tell you to live your life. Hmm. At least, so, I, sorry, I should, let me drill in on that because I just realized what how that could be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. I do believe that there is a way in which people should follow Jesus, and there will be a huge number of things that we all live the same way. Like we aren't going to be fornicating, right? Like there's going to be like that's just to pick a random example that comes to the front of my mind because sexuality is very important to people in our world. So fornication would end if everybody followed Jesus, right? I don't mean that Jesus doesn't have things for people to change and where there would be some sort of, in a broad sense, okay, now we're not doing that anymore. What I mean is that Jesus isn't telling me to use the state to tell you how you ought to live your life. That's not the risk that you're posing by saying that Christians can be libertarians. Hmm. Yeah, I do think that there is a reputation of Christianity being coercive. And that's something that maybe, you know, like is historical or something to that degree. And and certainly with stuff like the Catholic Church and Catholic social teaching and things like that, you know, there were attempts to sort of coerce people in one way or another. But it isn't at the heart of Christianity. And that isn't something mm-hmm. that is part and parcel of it. 
And it is kind of strange that a lot of libertarians kind of do have that reaction. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe the church just needs to do a better job of showing them what the gospel looks like and what the church mm-hmm. looks like. But I mean, we've, the church is human. <laughs> it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we mess it up <laughs> enough to where it also looks human too. And so we've messed that up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and this gets back to sort of like the submission to authority kind of thing, Mm because that really is sort of a form of coercion, right? Like if you're, if there's an authority telling you what to do, that's coercion. It's, Mm -hmm. and this is where I think a lot of Christians for me have this, like uh, somebody that I was talking to described like the past year as a contest of churches to show that there are better rule follower than other churches, something like that. And that just seems very off, especially because, you know, I mean, if it's one thing if you're taking the rules of God, but these are rules from the state. And oftentimes it wasn't even rules. It was like suggestions or guidelines or something yeah. like that. And it was, okay, well, we're going to do this to, you know, the, the umpteenth degree and, you know, do it better than everybody else as if that in itself was a virtue when... Yeah. You know, so it's not surprising that a lot of people do view it that way, because at least in some, I don't know, sex or some different churches and so on, that kind of is the current, you know, I don't know, paradigm or thought process or, yeah, ideology. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. Yeah. You mean churches following what the state says to do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it works both ways, too. Like, I know a lot of Christians and churches who are kind of like, well, are you kidding me? I'm not listening to those mandates. And and Mm -hmm. what's crazy is, like, in any other year, they'd be, like, all for, you know, following the government. Not all of them. I shouldn't throw them all into the bus there. The charitable thing that I could say, though, let me me be charitable about all this, Mm because I do believe that there are a lot of well-intentioned individuals who are not epidemiologists, they're not economists, they're not scientists, right? And so they have to work with secondhand information. They have to work with not doing what they're told, but using the knowledge as they receive it, as they can understand it and making application. I mean, you have pastors who are not trained in these things, right? Most pastors Mm -hmm. are not, um, Mm -hmm. unless they were like really into science in high school and a little bit of college. And then they also later became pastors. They're probably not going to be like, oh, let me look up all this data and make all these right decisions. They have to rely on others. And so you have people using the knowledge that they are getting, where's that knowledge coming from in the US? It's coming from state-run organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that those state-run organizations are telling them bad information. It doesn't mean that that the CDC, in this case, is telling them wrong information. And it's not like the CDC is making the churches shut down or not or do whatever. They're, They're working with the information that they have to. And so it looks like what they're doing is complying to state mandates, if you only judge it by, well, they're not thinking, they're just doing what the state tells them to do. Well, that may be true in some instances. And it's like, hey, well, if this is all we've got, we're just going to listen because we don't know what else to do. And we don't have time to look for the alternative data. And we're just going to play it safe. I mean, if you think about it, I realize that lockdowns don't work because human nature exists and people aren't going to listen. But if literally everybody simply stayed home and didn't go out for two weeks, we we would have sort of solved it, right? But that's not realistic to expect that to really, truly happen. If you can truly isolate, then sure, we would have been done by now. But it can't happen because life has to go on and there are other needs beyond you know, coronavirus in 2020. So my charitable 
interpretation of those people's actions is that they were doing the best they could. And if it looked like they were complying because, oh, the state said to, maybe that's just a risk they were willing to take because, you know, it was, (laughs) it did sometimes look like that, I'll admit. Well, so I think I'm going to be a little bit less charitable than you, (laughs) because at least for me, when I saw that, it was amazing how every single church seemed to come down on the side of the state. It was, they all claimed to have thought about it deeply, and they Mm -hmm. all magically had made this tough decision that all fell on the same side, which was, Mm -hmm. we're all going to shut down, we're all going to do this and that. And I thought a lot about it, and this is maybe where we can make a touch point with Bitcoin, is that... You know, a lot of these churches do have, do get tax benefits and things like that. They need certain permits and zoning with local government. So there is some level of a desire to not piss off the state or the government around them. Yeah. And it seemed just a little too convenient that every single one seemed to say the same thing. There were obviously a few, like you said, that did sue in various parts of the country and saying, hey, you can't shut us down. Right. But it was amazing that, yeah, the vast majority uh, on a quote unquote tough decision came out on the exact same side and that of the state, which, of course, they are, uh, you know, trying to get in the favor of. And, you know, I put out a tweet saying something to that effect back in last March, and I got absolutely railed for it on Twitter. It was absolutely astonishing how many yeah. people came out of the woodwork to tell me I'm an idiot. But that in a sense, like, it, you know, I suspect that there is sort of like, you know, a charitable spin would be that they were just concerned only about the health of the congregants or whatever. But a less charitable interpretation, which is something that I think I would subscribe to more, especially given that I know that humans are fallen and so on is that they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too, right? Like they're trying to seem like they're obeying God, but they're also trying to not piss off the state. Uh, So they make it seem like it was a tough decision as a way to spin it for the people that might get angry when they find out that the church isn't obeying God's word. Mm And yeah, that's what it seemed like to me, that they were trying to serve two masters. Yeah, well, and I think the non-most, I don't think the churches that you're talking about would have a nonconformist streak to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's very likely, it's very likely that it wasn't just let's obey the state, but also let's do what appears to be the thing that churches should do or that congregations Mm -hmm. or whatever do. Because I mean, other than like large events like conventions and things, I mean, churches were clearly going to be in the the spotlight, right? Mm -hmm. With respect to like, well, what are churches going to do? Because there are a lot Mm -hmm. of big churches out there. A lot of smaller churches in my area, I don't think they really, they just kept going. And and by smaller, I mean like, you know, a hundred or less kind of congregations. I think they just kind of were like, well, okay, some people are going to stay home and some people are going to come and, or Mm -hmm. we have a big enough congregation or a big enough building where we can sit far apart. But you have these large churches and they have to make a choice. And here's the eyes are on Christians, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you're right. I think your uncharitable interpretation is probably as viable of a, I mean, I'm telling you, I was being charitable on purpose, right? Uh So I agree with you as well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to be charitable and be like, okay, if I see the best in people and their motivations, because I know I know some of these people Mm. and they did shut down their churches. And I don't think they were just following the state. I think they were they were just following what they thought was. But think about it. The information that says, oh, well, what about this? What about that was not available at that time. 
Mm. right? Like the the alternative, the the compromise sort of position, like, well, what if we did it this way instead? Or what if we what if we did a hybrid? Or what if we made sure Mm -hmm. that, you know, we have four services instead of just two, Mm -hmm. you know, and we tell people to sign up for whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. So the alternatives, the creative alternative alternatives were not really being discussed. And so, of course, the hard decision was only one decision. Because the mm. only thing they were given information was like, well, lockdowns work. And Sweden hadn't been, you know, like we hadn't gone through the the specter of seeing Sweden do something completely different and knowing that, oh, well, we can do it differently. Right. And so, yeah. And then you can't you got to say face. So you got to say, well, you know, we just did what we felt the Lord was wanting us to do. And I'm not saying the Lord didn't tell you to do that or that you didn't pray about it or whatever. I don't mean to make fun of that. But like that is they're going to stick to it. They're not going to say, yeah, we probably should open it up a little bit more. We went a little bit too close to what the CDC said or whatever. And here's the thing. It's not like they think the CDC is some evil institution. They're just like, well, that's what we have. So, no, you're right. I think your uncharitable interpretation is there. (laughs) I didn't say the pivot to Bitcoin, though. Where are we going? Well, I mean, basically that they are kind of, in a sense, beholden to the state because of the tax breaks and all the fiat money. But I mean, I think the thing that I picked up on in your answer that I think is important to point out as well is that a lot of these churches, they couldn't reverse course, right? Like they, once they went down one thing, Hmm. there was just so much pride and so much like, you know, lack of humility there that it was when the additional data did come out, they still kept it locked out, right? Like there were yeah. there were churches that were closed for like nine months and not because the building wasn't available or whatever. It was because yeah. they made such a big deal of it at the beginning that they didn't want to look bad by reversing course. And they felt like they had to go down this road. And in, in a way, this is kind of what you know, this is the story of sin in humanity, right? Yeah. Like you do one thing to cover up the last thing and then, you know, you end up in like bigger and bigger trouble. I mean, that seems almost exactly what the church went through in this past yeah. year. Yeah. And it's just extremely tragic to me that of all institutions, like the church is so subject to that very thing. Yeah, it is. I'll tell you a little bit about what happened in my church. Our church mm-hmm. is around 1500 on a Sunday morning at two mm-hmm. services, maybe a thousand. And we actually just, not kidding, the Sunday before the lockdowns happened in Pennsylvania, we moved into a new auditorium like expansion Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So we couldn't, we couldn't gather. Our church did a really good job. I think the elders who were making these decisions, they chose to shut down and do remote for a few weeks and then they started opening it back up. But what they, when that was when it was a lot of uncertainty in March, right? Mm -hmm. Of 2020. And then over time, what ended up happening was they actually started using local data to Mm. make decisions within the confines of what they were allowed to by the state, which wasn't Mm. a whole lot in Pennsylvania, Mm. like I mentioned earlier. And so depending on what the local numbers were saying from the local hospitals in our area, they did or didn't have mask mandates that month or that week. Mm -hmm. And or they had it while like if you're up and about, you are fine. You got to sit six feet away and you can take your mask off for worship or whatever it might be. So they like kept adapting and they did kept reversing course back and forth. Mm. And we did have no mask for a while and then we went back to them. And so they were very agile, if you will. Mm. And they got a lot of flack for it from both sides. They accounted for the people who wanted to wear masks. They had a special room because they were able to do remote because it's a bigger church now and all of this. They had all the media technology. So. 
at least that's been my experience. So maybe your experience is all these churches can't, or like they're going to say face and say that they just did all the right things. I do take your point though, that um, we are down this track where churches have been beholden to the state in a certain way with tax breaks. And I can understand why atheists and people who are kind of against 501c3s getting tax breaks being against churches getting tax benefits. I can kind of see their point. It's like, well, mm-hmm. wh- wh- what makes them special? They're not even listening to the government or whatever, or some of them mm-hmm. are. But yeah, so, and I can imagine where you're taking this with Bitcoin though. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, essentially, you know, churches have been corrupted by fiat money is kind of the point, right? And, yep. Yep. and you know, that seems to me a big part of why the, you know, response was, uniform essentially like across denominations you know like liberal or pro or conservative congregations or you know whatever like they all did the same thing and that to me was extremely worrisome it, it didn't matter if you were you know coptic orthodox in california or you know tim keller's church in new york or something like that it, it seemed like everybody just did the exact same thing it yeah. just it blew my mind that you know, that was the state of the American church that fiat money had corrupted that much that everybody just came out on exactly the side that the government wanted everybody to do. That's pretty scary, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't ne- it doesn't inherently or implicitly indict what churches are doing, but it mm-hmm. is something to be definitely cautious about. Like you're saying, you're like, oh, this is kind of worrisome. Like, what? Hold on here. Take a step back and be like, why is everybody falling in line? Whereas before... Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't see that. I'd probably push back with you a little bit on the everybody, because I do know a a number of churches, again, like I said, who didn't comply. But, you know, I know churches are mostly left leaning to definitely complied. Mm, Yeah, it did seem like a vast majority did. And the exceptions almost kind of certainly (laughs) proved the rule because there were so few. Uh Well, anyway, with regard to Christian libertarianism, I mean, do you see more Christians turning libertarian and more libertarians turning Christian? I guess those are two separate questions. Yeah. So more libertarians turning Christian. We have we receive a couple emails every year at LCI mm-hmm. about libertarian, libertarian, non-Christian libertarians, I should say, that we have helped keep or have helped them see the gospel. I know one particular person who was about to abandon his faith because he became a libertarian and and thought there was a disconnect and Mm. he realized, oh, there's not. And I think that experience is relatively common. I shouldn't speculate too heavily or make that too strong of a statement, but the experience of becoming disenfranchised or not disenfranchised, disenchanted with the faith that you grew up with. And you mm. learn new ideas, you go off to college and you might, you know, get some leftist ideas or some whatever. You get different ideas and you're like, eh, you know, what I grew up with wasn't so hot. And you embrace something like libertarianism, which has a very individualistic, personal autonomy, do what you want, just don't harm other people sort of mentality. I could see why people are like, yeah, I don't really see my Christian faith as part of this. And, you know, I know at LCI, we've helped we've helped at least, I can imagine, a dozen over the past decade or so. And I know that those are just the ones we've heard about. But people saying, oh, you help me keep these two together. When it comes to the other side of the equation, the converting Christians to libertarianism, it's our main goal. And so we do pay attention more to that element of things. Mm-hmm. And so what we hear from people is, okay, I was liberty-leaning, 
or I was, I thought I was all about liberty and I was a conservative and you helped me realize that war is not a conservative or freedom value. Mm. Or you convinced me that, you know, the drug war is actually, you know, a terrible infringement on liberties. We're still working on a lot of Christians with respect to border policy, but that we'll have to keep talking about that another time. <laughs> but we do help people see that if they want to be consistent with their goals for what does the scriptures, what does the gospel say about our life in public policy? or not public policy, but our life in public, which is politics, right? Mm. You can't not be political as a Christian. It's not possible. Mm. You may not vote. You may not have any care in the world for what happens in the Republican, the Democrat, or the Libertarian, or the Green, or whatever party. You may never show up to the polls. But you are, by your very nature of being a Christian, making a political statement because you're saying, Jesus is my Lord. I have allegiance to Christ. I do not have allegiance to anyone else. And when the state demands your allegiance, those can come into conflict, right? Mm-hmm. They do come into conflict. And they so, have come into conflict, yeah. Yeah, well, and yeah, and they, and they might even more so as time goes on here. And so by being a Christian, you are political, period. How you live your life makes a difference, and how you advocate for what the gospel is makes a difference, and how you think about other people in your life, other people that are strangers, other people that, you know, just everyone that's not you which is you know friends family strangers etc how you conceive of yourself in relationship to them is a political is, is political and so to be consistent with what you envision that world looking like libertarianism is your best shot mm. because it doesn't require you to tell someone how to live it only asks you to invite them to the right way of living and saying you know what if you don't choose that way that's fine I'm going to choose this way. I'm going to respect you. And you're going to see that life with Jesus is better. Life with freedom is better. And that's why those two can go together really, really well. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm finding a lot of similar things in the Bitcoin world as a, you know, uh, Bitcoiner and a Christian. And, you probably have uh, a lot of people you that are like non-Christian Bitcoiners that you sort of witness to, right? Well, I mean, they're they're getting curious on their own, and then asking me because you know I'm kind of open about my Christianity yeah. on Twitter. And what so is on. it that that they are interested? Like, is it like for me? I can understand why someone says you're a libertarian and a Christian, but like, mm-hmm. why is it? Why is being in favor of Bitcoin something intriguing? As a, if, why is being a Christian interested in Bitcoin intriguing for someone who's not a Christian and into Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, great question. At least in my experience, there are two sort of different ways in which people sort of get curious about Christianity. First is, once they get into Bitcoin, they realize they've been lied to all their lives about money. And it, it is sort of like a shocking thing for them. And they go, okay, I've been lied to about my uh, about money all my life, or mostly it's a lie of omission, right? Like they don't tell you about the Federal Reserve or how mm-hmm. the monetary yeah. system works and so on. <clears throat> so when they fi- figure it out, they're like, wow, this is actually how it works? What kind of a scam is this? And how... And I can see why they were hiding it from me. It was it was to take advantage of me. And then they start asking questions about lots of other things, including, you know, right. food, fitness and other things. And of course, like like life, like eternal life or soul and philosophy and things of that nature. And they start asking some of these deeper questions. And I've had many people come up to me and say, hey, you know, what? I got into Bitcoin and then I started asking more questions about other stuff and I'm starting to explore, you know, Christianity because I realized like, you know, atheism just 
like that, or they usually come from some form of atheism, or maybe they grew mm -hmm. up Christian, converted to atheism, and are converting back. But there's something that they realize was a lie, and they are committed enough to the truth that they actually are self-aware enough that they realize, okay, I really have to go investigate this again. The other sort of angle that I've seen is for a lot of Bitcoiners, they, they start having a much lower time preference because, you know, having a really good savings technology kind of makes you do that. Mm -hmm. When you can plan for the future, you start thinking about it a lot more. So, you know, a lot of them start thinking about having families, you know, get like doing, uh, you know, raising kids, things like that. And then this very practical question comes up, okay, what more moral values am I going to impart to my children? And they very quickly realize, okay, like you can't just impart whatever values. You need some framework or justification for doing it. And that leads to, okay, well, like, and, you know, especially like if you want to find somebody that is aligned with you on that, that's not so easy unless you have some framework that you both agree to. And, you know, that's another way in which they get curious about Christianity as well. So I would say one is much more sort of like, you know, investigating the truth and going down that path. And then the other is more practical. Well, how mm -hmm. do I live a better life? And um, and both of those things, interestingly enough, come through Bitcoin. Hmm. Has anybody ever given you the challenge of like, isn't Christianity sort of like literally divine fiat commandments? And <laughs> like, I haven't had that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, it's funny. That was it it is thing. fiat in the sense that let it be, right? Fiat lux is like the first sure. uh, sentence yeah. of the Bible in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let me know if you have anybody else. <laughs> I'd be curious. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe that's something that I can discuss with Knud or something like that. He's an atheist, and we've been talking a little bit about some of that stuff. Uh, but I don't know. It's definitely interesting how much of a crossover there is. I will say, yeah. though, that it's it's a little easier to convert Christians to Bitcoin, especially after they learn about like the abuse of the Federal Reserve and so on. They, yeah. they get, okay, I am participating in a corrupt system where I'm stealing and so on. So Yeah, yeah. right. Well, anyway, thank you so much for having been on. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Yeah, so our website is libertarianchristians.com. You can find me there. You can contact us from from that website. Our recent book that we, uh, we didn't talk about this, but we just oh, came out with this book. <laughs> no, it's okay. We just came out with a book called uh, Faith Seeking Freedom. You can find that at libertarianchristians.com, faithseekingfreedom.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We're not active on Twitter, although we probably should be. I'm hoping to change that. I'm just not witty enough. <laughs> in 240 characters or whatever the number is 288 280 yeah. yeah so so yeah see i don't even know how many characters i'm limited to so maybe that's my problem if i knew i had more words I, or characters i could i could be better but so <laughs> no anyway so we're on facebook we are on twitter of course i'm on email and you know i'd be happy to answer any questions chat in any kind of pushback that anybody wants to say to what i had to say yeah libertarianchristians.com Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm a proud advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they're building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes List. Doug can be found at Doug, at Doug Swoward on Twitter and LibertarianChristians.com.
Until next time, fiat the last.